I think keeping an eye on ways that you can leverage all of your customer data, and I've been baffled by this for years. I mean, even in my early days, I would look at all of the information that a customer would put on a mortgage application in the industry, we call it a 1003, and they would pour their heart out. You, you would know everything, where their checking accounts are, their savings accounts, their investments, retirement plans, and we would do the mortgage, we would put it in the folder, we would stick it in the vault because we didn't scan things back then. And you had their fingerprint right there. Hello and welcome back to Banking on Disruption. I'm Fred Cavenna. Welcome back to our regular listeners and a hearty welcome to those of you who are tuning in for the first time. We have another amazing guest with us this week in Eric Cook. Eric cut his teeth as a community banker, and when he saw how technology was changing the landscape, shifted his career to helping banks navigate the path to digital transformation. I gotta warn you, our conversation with Eric clocks in at just over an hour, but I promise you it's worth every minute. After the interview, Dana and I will be discussing Salesforce's AI Day earlier this week, giving our take on a new Beatles song, What?, and sorting out the differences between employee retention and engagement. While you're listening to this podcast, why not take a moment to follow us on LinkedIn at the Banking on Disruption podcast and on Instagram at, at Banking on Disruption. Now sit back and strap in because our show is coming to you right now. Welcome back. On this episode, Dane and I are excited to welcome Eric Cook. Eric is a mountain biker, golden retriever fanatic, lover of heavy metal, and possibly most pertinent to our conversation today, a recovering banker. Eric spent 15 years as a community banker before making the shift to digital strategist in 2007. Eric's an award-winning agency owner with WSI Digital. He's an author, a speaker, an educator, and most recently, founder of The Linked Banker, a mentoring and masterminding community focused on helping banking professionals build their personal brand online. Eric, I've enjoyed attending several of your happy hours, including one last week where we talked a lot about AI and how bankers can improve their social media impact with authenticity. I am so excited to welcome you to the show. I'd love to kick off our conversation by asking a little about your banking background. I love that term, recovering banker. Tell us a little bit about how you got into banking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first off, I'm going to take that intro and I'm just going to like play it the next time I have to do a presentation. <laughs> that sounded amazing. Um, I know I gave you golden retriever and mountain biker and heavy metal, but you, uh, you made that sound like poetry. So well, well done. Well, you were, you were welcome to it. Okay. Um, I, uh, like a lot of bankers, uh, I was uh, an accidental banker. My father was a banker for 33 years, and the last thing I wanted to do after graduating from college is to come back home and work with my dad. Oh, um, chagrin. Um, but I uh, I took a brief job after college with a gentleman that turned out to be um, a not-so-nice individual and realized that not everybody is uh, super sweet and friendly like they were when I grew up in Little Marshall, Michigan and went to Little Alma College. So I I came home somewhat with my tail between my legs and uh, one of the board members actually, I don't know if it was uh, a succession planning way, way in advance or what, <laughs> but 
um, said, hey, do you think Eric could be interested in coming to the bank and helping out? And so I, I, I wanted to submit a resume. I wanted to interview um, like anybody else, because the last thing that you want to have is any sort of um, family preference hovering over you. Um, although my father has a saying, there's nothing wrong with nepotism as long as you keep it in the family, which <laughs> until I looked up what the heck the word nepotism meant, I didn't really understand that joke. Um, but I, I came to the bank, I worked a teller line for probably uh, at least a couple of years. Um, but in, uh, uh, 1995, um, we had bought a gateway 2000 computer uh fully awesome i can i can picture the spots this i know the the lovely cow box um (laughs) fully installed with the amazing program america online you've got mail i remember that was uh that was an exciting statement now if you turn that on your computer would never shut up but um (laughs) a friend of mine from high school started a dial-up internet service provider for those of you that are under the age of 30 or i guess that's called an isp um and we spent some time together and we taught each other HTML and I built marshallsavings.com and launched it as a $75 million, two office, 15 employee community bank in 1995 and, um, started a side business. And while I was at the bank, we brought in the network. We did two data conversions. We implemented real time online banking. We launched a debit card. Um, we got bought. And they made me the COO of the new bank and we merged online banking into a new platform that didn't exist. And I got to play with a lot of technology. And I think having uh, my father and his trust in me was a real advantage to us being able to innovate and test things. And a lot of what we hear about in the world of digital banking now, digital transformation is you know, break stuff, test, um, you know, not be afraid of failure. And, and whether I realized it or not at the time, I, I kind of grew up in that environment because I had, uh, I had the trust of the board who I had known my entire life and obviously my father who I had known my entire life. <laughs> and, um, it just created a really fun environment. Um, until I got to the point where the next logical step would be, CEO of a publicly traded bank. And that got me even further away from what I was really enjoying. And so that caused me to question my future at the bank. I didn't really want to move. I didn't want to go to work for another bank because I felt that that just wouldn't be me. Uh, My father had retired and um, that kind of is uh, the tail end of the banking career and an amazing 15 years. Um, Went to the Graduate School of Banking in Madison, Wisconsin and finished that three-year program and got my MBA and um, I think really set me up nicely for what I've been doing the last 16. Wow. Now, did I hear 75 million and two employees? Uh, I think 14 employees. Two offices. Wow. Two offices. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Although that would have been, yeah, me and my dad running the show, taking deposit. <laughs> Closing loans. Yeah, we, we were efficient. I think we had an efficiency ratio under 50. Um, the bank that acquired us was very envious of that. We produced three times the mortgage volume with half the lenders. Our core deposits were probably twice what they were, and they were a couple of times our size. 
Um, but philosophically, they had grown their bank using CD rate plays, and we had tend to be more of a relationship core deposit bank. So we were an attractive uh, an attractive target for them, and we didn't have overlapping markets. And of the 32 employees we had at the time, um, one individual didn't have a place, and um, and that was really testament to my father's commitment to his staff. Because even though we were publicly traded since 95, he really took care of his staff. You take care of your staff, they take care of the customers, the customers take care of bringing revenue and profit, and then that takes care of your shareholders. And not every publicly traded company has that philosophy. And that has also been a really good uh, lesson for me to learn and to witness front seat um, on the bus uh, that was Marshall Savings. So that was also a cool life lesson. I love it. Like there's, there's, there's some bedrock in there and it really, you know, it seems like from the beginning you've embraced technology. How, how does, how does your relationship and how you're embracing technology continue to evolve today? I think, you know, one of the things, um, you know, WSI, the the organization that I joined, it's a global franchise structured organization based out of Toronto with offices in about 80 countries around the world, also founded in 1995, which is when I started building websites, coincidentally. But we came up with a new tagline and I was tapped to sit on that committee with the director of marketing and a handful of other very talented consultants. And our tagline is embrace digital, stay human. And that um, really resonated with me as well, because I think, you know, whether it's the, the topic du jour, which is AI, or if you go back, you know, 12, 18 months, it was all Web3. If you go back a few more months, <laughs> it was, you know, uh, marketing automation and social media and learning management systems and CMSs. But I think technology at the root and what we used it for at Marshall Savings and at Monarch was to look for ways to more efficiently and effectively serve our customers and to take care of each other um, by automating the mundane so you could focus on what you really needed to focus on as a human being. And that's what I really love about our tagline of embrace digital but stay human because the risk that I see right now is a lot of people are embracing digital. They're jumping into chat GPT or write me a blog post about blah, blah, blah. And then it kicks out. And what Fred and I talked about was some of the AI generated content that LinkedIn is putting out and it may get better. We don't know. Um, but just kicking out content for the sake of kicking out content. Yeah. You're embracing digital because you're using the tool. But how do you stay human? How do you understand prompting? How do you understand the personality? How do you fact check? How do you know what it is that is being produced for you and how it's going to resonate with the audience that's on the other end that's going to be reading it and consuming it or watching it or listening to it? And um, and and that has always intrigued me, whether it's a basic HTML website that is probably I, I go back every once in a while when I want a little slice of humble pie, I'll hop into the Wayback Machine and I'll just do a search for Marshall <laughs> and I'll look at that website. But then I'll pop over for the same year in 1995 and I'll look at Amazon or I'll look at Microsoft right. or I'll look at McDonald's and I'm like, that wasn't too bad back then, but uh, certainly <laughs> didn't continue as, as they all did. 
Um, but it, it's just, it's always been something that's intrigued me. I didn't have any formal training in undergrad or anything like that. It was business and psychology, double major. But when we got Macintosh computers in our dorm room, I'd spend evenings down there just playing with the mouse and drawing stuff and Microsoft art. And um, it, it just was one of those things that was kind of a, a hidden uh, interest of mine that I continued to be able to embrace and what I do as a consultant and, uh, and mentor on the, on the link banker side. I think that's phenomenal. I've been in, in technology for a long time as well. I've always embraced it. And I always try very hard not to look too critically with that reverse lens. And I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's been around for a while. I started going around the internet again in the last couple of weeks. Somebody sent it to me. The 1986 commercial with Steve Ballmer pitching windows like a carnival barker. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I think about that and I think about like how far I'll drop that link in the show notes. It's an amazing commercial if anybody out there hasn't seen it. But, you know, we, we've all come a long way in the in the last 20, 30 years. Um, I, I'd like to take a step back for a half second here. You know, our podcast is targeted uh, you know, for people working in financial services. However, it's also targeted people that work uh, in the Salesforce ecosystem that may or may not be working in financial services or banking. For those people that are less familiar with the nuances that come with banking, you want to just talk a little bit about how you see marketing for banks as being fundamentally different than under other industries, if it is. I'm curious to hear your perspective. You know, I think it, um, I think I just went through puberty there. My voice just cracked. Um, it, <laughs> it's it's similar in many ways, but different in others. And and when I say similar, at the end of the day, and I know a lot of people talk about, are you B2B, B2C? Um, you know, I like to think of it as P2P. It's person to person or H to H, human to human. It doesn't matter if you're a commercial lender trying to sell into a company or you're a Salesforce trying to get into an organization. There's going to be human beings on the other end of that buying cycle that are going to have to get to know and like and trust you. And that may be a different period or a different time horizon based off of the complexity of the sale and how many of those P's or H's you need to communicate with. But at the end of the day, people need to trust other people with that buying decision. They need to know that you've got their best interest at heart and at mind and you understand what it is that they're trying to do and that the solution that you're providing them, whether it's a mortgage or a checking account or a full-blown integrated CRM with all sorts of bells and whistles that roll along with it, they need to understand that that's being recommended and they can see that there's a fit because of the challenges and the pain that they have. Um, and so in that regard, I think it's very similar. You just have to take the time to understand your audience and address the questions that they have. We do that sometimes. Um, often when I'm doing in-person workshops, I'll, I'll work through the process of building personas where we'll divide up into different groups and we use big giant pieces of paper and sticky notes, or I've got a couple of virtual sticky note boards that I can do if we're zooming together. Um, but it gives you the opportunity to really think through that relationship and what resonates with the audience and how do you provide them comfort beyond just rates and fees and pricing. And, and that I see is blocking and tackling in my opinion, that can be applicable for any industry. 
where I think it's different is you're dealing with people's money. You're dealing with their finances. You're dealing with their ability to um, move their family out of a, an apartment and buy a house and to build equity and to have a backyard so they can get a dog and be close to the right school district. And, and those are very emotional, um, connected decisions that aren't made lightly. It's not like, you know, what widget am I going to buy on Amazon because it gave me a recommendation and I drop another 40 bucks and throw something into my cart and it shows up tomorrow in my mailbox. These are big decisions. Um, and so you have to take into consideration more elements of trust and validation and reputation and make sure that people are very comfortable. Yeah, they got to know and like and trust you. And one of the things I say all the time when I have an opportunity to speak and what my father told me is people are going to want to get to know and they'll choose to do business with you because they see you as their banker, not just because you work at the bank. But being that you work at the bank, the bank needs to have that reputation that also backs you up because I can't just go out and convince somebody to let me do their mortgage if they like me. I need to have an institution that's rock solid and reputable behind me. But ultimately, it's it's my responsibility to get them and know and like and trust me. Um, and so taking in consideration that for some of those purchases, it's going to be a longer decision cycle. Um, there's there's increasing competition across the world in all industries, but you've got you know neobanks and fintechs and all these online mobile alternatives that are the shiny object that might seem like an attractive alternative, you know, press button get mortgage kind of thing, which could work <laughs> for some individuals. But at the end of the day, conveying the value of having, and I know it's cliche, but high tech and high touch, the economies of scale and Moore's law and everything else has allowed for even the smallest community bank to have a really, really awesome tech stack that can do most everything that some of the fintechs are doing, but with the advantage of a phone call with an answer, Marshall Savings, this is Eric, how can I help you? And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. optionality, right? It's a it's yeah. an optionality and channel. I want to go back to something you said a second ago, and, and this is totally not planned. But you know, I came out of uh, wealth when I, I worked in industry for sixteen years. It's primarily in wealth in the broker dealer space, and for a long time, the kind of path to riches, if you will, if you were going to be a financial advisor, was to go to some institution that was large and had a reputation when you didn't have one because you're new. Yep and start to build those relationships. And then once you have a, a sizable book of business of people that trust you, make a move to be independent or make a move to be to move to one of the lower cost uh, providers out there and just take a, a bigger piece of the pie, right? You know, Edward Jones, Merrill Lynch, they're not going to pay you as much as, you know, being independent or like setting up your own shop with LPL or something like that. Yep. I'm curious on the banker side. And I, I what, what reminded me of this is when you were talking about, you know, it's not just about having a reputation as a bank. It's about having that reputation or relationship as a banker. And we're sitting here about a week after, you know, Lionel Messi, and I'm not like the world's biggest uh, soccer football fan, but he just signed an amazing deal, which, you know, he's getting a piece of, you know, TV rights. He's getting a big piece of, you know, licensing rights from Adidas, you know, and, and like, 
in sports, it's moved a lot from, you know, I'll say my generation, our generation, where there was a lot of team loyalty to now a lot of player loyalty. Yeah. Right? Messi's fan base is going to move around wherever Messi goes. Yep. Are you seeing a lot of that in banking? Like, are there these, you know, for lack of a better word, rock star bankers out there that just have an amazing Rolodex, an amazing reputation for being, you know, great at taking care of their customer. And, you know, they're, they're moving around from bank to bank and kind of building, you know, their business that way. Or is that not something that you're seeing a lot in? You know, I, and I, and I think a lot of it is, you know, the influencer mentality. you you build a fan base, you get people to, to get to know you. And I think social media certainly has exacerbated that to the nth degree because you can get to know somebody so much more when you're following their tweets or their Instagrams or their stories or whatever. Um, it just pulls you on the inside and makes you have that emotional connection with that individual. Um, but when we were acquired um, by Monarch, one of the things that was rather unusual to me because we were in Little Town Marshall and Monarch was out of Coldwater, just south of us. And there were three banks that were basically headquartered in Coldwater. And I was surprised at the number of employees that had worked at all three of those banks in that one town. They were at Southern, they were at Century, they were at Monarch, and they'd bounce around and and customers would follow them. And it was pre-social media, it was pre-internet, um, but people resonated and you know eric's not at monarch anymore he's over at southern uh -huh. uh, you know let's go see eric over at southern or he's over at century um and so i i think that's one of the things when we do social media training and it came up in a conversation just recently is um you know you talk about personal branding and what we do at the link banker to help individual bankers build their brand and influence and connect with the customers and prospects and the communities that they serve and i will often hear an executive say but what if i make fred or dane look really really good and you're posting and you're getting lots of views and you're getting tons of engagement doesn't that put you out there with a target on your back and then somebody's going to come along and poach you and steal you from me so wouldn't I rather put you in a gilded cage and have you produce, <laughs> keep you a secret? Um, and, you know, the the answer is not an easy one because the flip side is I I don't let my employees be on social media and, and Fred and Dane look like bozos on LinkedIn because you're not allowed to post, but yet you're still crushing it as a commercial lender and you'll eventually get frustrated and leave for a very different reason. And my response to that is, you know, what kind of an environment are you creating that makes your employees want to stay, that they love it there, that you empower them, that you train them, that you educate them, that you reward them, that you praise um, and, and thank them and they know they're appreciated. And somebody comes along and they dangle 50 grand in front of you. Um, you can't beat that. But how long or how likely is that ever going to be, you know? it's the environment that you're creating that I think is going to be more of what fosters that longevity and loyalty than let's just keep you locked in a room and not let you use LinkedIn so that nobody knows that you're here because eventually they will, or you're going to take an effort and do it yourself and then you'll be gone. And, and, you know, so, so I, I don't hear that as much, but literally that question came up um, just like two weeks ago when I was doing some training. 
And um, it's always a fun one to answer because you certainly don't want to get fired from your, your engagement. <laughs> answer what the little uh, devil on your shoulder is saying. Um, but uh, there are certainly people that that build that business and that's how they do it. But in an industry like banking, um, if you do that and you do it often, that reputation also will follow you and you'll eventually become toxic and you'll be one that, you know, well, yeah, Eric's a producer, but he only stays where he goes for a year and then he's gone. Is that really somebody that we want to bring in? Cause most of the stuff he's going to do is going to likely go out the door in 12 months when he decides to jump to the next opportunity. So it'll catch up with you. Um, if, if, uh, if that's your, if that's your goal, I'm loving this conversation when so many are encouraging their peers, the brands, you know, ourselves to be empathetic. I'm reminded that that's one of the, it's just one of the things I love in marketers, like marketers are empathetic and you were talking about P to P and H to H. And so I'm, I'm loving this conversation. You know, I'm curious over the years, I'm sure you've seen a lot of examples of effective and ineffective marketing. Are there any examples that you find particularly innovative in terms of the campaigns themselves yeah. or maybe how they were formed? One pops right into my head and I still get, and I know this is, I'm, I'm kind of a sap. I think I got that from my father. <laughs> he's, he's a pretty emotional guy, even though he's very much more the banker than I am. He was very, the, uh, the mortgage, the finance, the money guy. Um, but also wore his heart on his sleeve. And, um, when TD came out and this is going back a few years, but when they came out with their automated thanking machine, and if you've not seen the commercials, grab a tissue, pull them up on YouTube. Um, but TD set up an ATM machine in a bunch of their offices. And uh, the backstory, as I understand it, is they learned some of the backstory of some of their customers that were dealing with challenges. Um, family member moved away, lifetime dreams to you know go to a blue jays game um dealing with cancer i mean you name it all these different stories and they would walk up to the atm and the atm um would just have a conversation and they had cameras all over the place and you could see these customers you know like crap themselves when the atm's talking to them and telling them their life story and then the slot opens up and instead of you know 20 bucks it's uh it's tickets to throw out the first pitch and one of the stars rolls around the back side of the atm and has an autographed mitt or it's uh you know first class tickets to go see their daughter that they haven't seen in a year that moved across the country um and that was probably one of the most powerful, empathetic human campaigns because you are not thinking, other than the fact that they're standing in an ATM machine, which should be giving out cash and it's not, you wouldn't really think of a bank. You would just think of this as an amazing organization doing some really, really cool things for its customers, taking the time to get to know them and 
to do something. And it wasn't just, hey, let's see how many views we can get on YouTube. Uh, they really were an impactful um, gesture that I I thought was pretty amazing. And, um, you know, even talking about it, I I still feel that in my chest and uh and it chokes me up just because it it was such a powerful message and you think about and i've i've shared that video in sessions and there's still a lot of bankers that haven't even seen that didn't even know that campaign existed and it's probably 10 years old now at maybe more and um of course i'm standing in front of the room and and i'm kind of getting all you know glassy-eyed but I, I notice people in the room, you know, um, wiping away a tear or something. And, you know, how can a financial marketing message elicit, like you said, that empathy, that emotion and get you beyond, you know, if somebody did that for a friend or a relative or you just saw that, um, they're going to have to screw up pretty bad for you to forget that and to decide that you don't want to do business with them anymore. Um, so, so that's one that certainly is just a classic that jumps out every time I think about the emotional connection. Um, and if you've not, of course, after you get done listening to this podcast episode, <laughs> um, but if you've not seen that, or if you have take some time to go out to YouTube and look for, uh, TD automated thanking machine and, and watch some of those videos and then go back and take a look at what marketing message you're sending. And compare that and how are you connecting emotionally with your customers um, and getting them, you know, uh, to fall in love with you because of who you are and not just what you're providing or the rates that you're offering or the services or your pricing. Um, really, really good message there. So thanks for that trip yeah. on memory lane. I love the campaign. Uh, I, I hadn't thought about it in, in years now. Uh, I'll drop it in the show notes for the audience so they don't have to go out and look for it. But one of the things that, that it really invoked for me was, it, obviously, it's the connection, it's the relationship. It's, you know, one of the buzzwords today is, is hyper-personalization, right? You yeah. Know, getting down to, the, to the, the, the marketing message of one. Uh, Dana and I both tuned in separately. Salesforce had a AI day yesterday talking about AI, as everybody does. It was not the the core of the message, but one of the things they said in the intro is one of their products, which is Data Cloud, which is basically a, a CDP on steroids, is the fastest growing product that they've ever launched. And I'm curious, you know, when you think about, like, I love the campaign, I love the message. How does a bank really get to that hyper-personalization at scale? You know, how do you get there what have you seen working and, and, you know, do you think it's even a goal they should try to get to right now? I think for, for at least in the community banking space, it's difficult. Um, but I think over time it's going to be easier and more economical, like with anything else in data and technology, the trickle down effect is going to make it an available option for community banks. Um, there's a lot of marketing automation platforms out there. We use SharpSpring. We're a HubSpot partner as well through the WSI network. Um, we've got a couple of banks that are exploring Salesforce right now. Um, but the the ability to provide customization, even starting with something as simple 
as an email that says, hey, Fred. And I know this is going to seem really, really simplistic because this is going to a lot of people that are going to say, really, that's your suggestion? (laughs) We still see banks that are extracting their data from their core system and Fred or Dane is an all uppercase because that's the way the core platform has to have it. And they're importing that information and it's dear Fred and we're screaming it because they don't know how to run an Excel proper case formula to just make the F capitalized. And it looks like you've actually typed it instead of I'm so excited that I'm just going to all uppercase your name. And I'm so stoked to be talking to you about our (laughs) mortgage campaign. Um, But if they, if they can't figure out how to do it, some of them are just leaving it off altogether and missing an opportunity to at least put your name in. And then you get into you know, do we have a persona? What 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 fits Fred? Is he a mortgage? Is he a business customer? Is he somebody looking for retirement? Did he just have a baby? Some of those things you might know about your customers. You're not going to know that about every single one of your customers, but for the ones that you do know, do you have the ability to record that in a system that's easily available to all of your employees so that you start off with 5% of your system, your database, your customer segments, you 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 take 5% and now I know Fred is somebody interested in buying a house. So then I swap out a custom block of text using an automation system that gives a little bit more of a personalization to Fred and the six other people that I know are interested in buying a house and the 5,000 other people that are on the email list get the generic message from the president. But at least for Fred and six other people, they get something related to buying a house and you feel special. Um, those are baby steps to, to get towards that. There are companies out there. I've had some conversations with a company I met at the financial brand forum in Vegas last year called Finalytics. And they're building in the ability to feed content directly into a website based off of known visitor data. So that now if Fred engages with content and I can see that Fred's interested in a mortgage, when Fred shows up to my bank's website, it's now, you know, buying a house, the American dream, the backyard, the puppy for the kids, the pool um, versus something that doesn't resonate with you. Again, not going to know that for everybody, but for the 5% of people that you can, now they feel special. And can you take that 5% to 15% next year and to 30% the year after that? And, and just getting in that mindset of don't feel like you got to boil the ocean but where are the little pockets that you can make an impact and at least get in the habit of looking for ways that you can provide that personalization? I think the the the, the process to get there is just take that first step, not feel like you've got to finish the race all in uh, in one big jump. You know, Eric, I love that. I think the the message is really that banks should start where they are and it's very much a crawl, walk, run approach. And don't let the fact that you can't get to, you know, true personalization from every, for every one of your customers stand in the way of doing something to start to move the needle. And I think that's, that's phenomenal. I'm, I'm curious, one of the things that I really enjoyed last week when I attended uh, the Linked Banker Happy Hour was a discussion around social media and, and you you touched on a little bit earlier in our conversation. What do you see as the role of social media today 
for banks as as a business and for bankers individually? You know, how have you seen that channel be most effectively leveraged? Yeah. So I, you know, obviously it's not a surprise because of what we're doing over at the Link Banker and, and trying to help bankers be more visible themselves. Um I think the the opportunity for social media at the individual level is probably as powerful as it's ever been. There's a lot of noise. Um, people want to, not that anybody out there is going to, well, maybe, who knows? We might have the next messy of banking and, and uh, <laughs> create the, the mega fans. Um, but I think people like to get to know other people. And the challenge that often exists um, with, with some individuals, not just bankers is, you know, maybe I don't want you to know that, um, I, uh, I live on a lake and I've got golden retrievers and I ride mountain bikes. And maybe the fact that I am a little bit of a metalhead and I like my music loud, that might scare some people away. Maybe I don't want people to know that. Maybe I want people to think I'm a country Western fan. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, being comfortable in in who you are and being okay with sharing as much as you are comfortable sharing will help people get over that you know well what's eric all about and i'll 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 go to events and people ask me about the cook dogs and they'll say you know been on any cool bike rides lately or when's your next concert and I'll know them vaguely, but sometimes I won't even know who they are, but they've been following on Instagram or they've seen some posts on LinkedIn. And to me, that's fine. I like that, but it's a mindset that not everyone has. And, and to, to maintain privacy certainly is your prerogative and you can certainly do that. But if you're comfortable sharing that human side of yourself with the rest of the world, I know there's a lot of debate on LinkedIn and it continues to debate about, you know, should you be taking selfies and sharing personal stories or is that should be more of a business network with business information? And I think the horse has left the barn because most people that are sharing personal information get really good engagement because we're tired of just the pure business, 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 professional stuff. We want to hear some fun stuff. We want to see goofy face yeah. selfies. <laughs> and then have a little message around that and um, and and knowing how to do that. But yet in the world of banking or any organization, for that matter, how do you not go too far where you get yourself in trouble or you, you know, banking, you you violate a reg or you say something you shouldn't that would get compliance concerned or privacy. Um, so understanding your boundaries, but then being comfortable within those boundaries to to go right up to them. Um I think at the business side, whether it's a bank or any sort of organization, um, trying to share the the human side of the business, celebrate your employees, talk about the culture that you have, um, you know, what's it like working there? What's it like being a customer? What are the special things that you do beyond, you know, every once in a while, product and service, you've got to talk about that. But that really should be 20% of what you're putting out there. It should be the other stuff, the things that people wouldn't realize. And Donald Miller's book, The Story Brand, you know, talks all about, you know, putting the customer in the hero position. And you as the employer or the employee or the business, you're you're very much 
the the guide and uh, and and how do you put the customer as the hero and all the stuff that you're putting out there so that when people see your official business stuff they see that this is an organization that puts their customers first and again just like the TD example go back and take a look at your marketing take a look at your ad take a look at your messaging and and is it really customer focused you know the the reoccurring large check donation picture that adorns every bank's Facebook page. <laughs> um, is that really about the United Way getting $500? Or is it about you as a bank <laughs> writing a big check for $500? And wouldn't it be better off featuring what programs the United Way is able to grow or develop or introduce or the people that you've touched as a result? And the $500 is secondary to everything else that has been able to be achieved by the United Way because of your $500 or $1,000 donation. I think that's hilarious. I think there should be some kind of a standard as to how big you can make the check that is directly proportionate to how many zeros are on the front. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just don't know what, what kind of story you're even telling if you're blowing up a check for 500 bucks. Yeah. But I, I, I love what the, the whole early part of the answer, especially we talked about the individual, the two things that really came to mind were, were principles around both scarcity and authenticity. I think one of the hardest lessons I ever learned was, you know, customers aren't really scarce, right? It, it, it's finding out which are the right customers for you, which are the right relationships for you, and bringing, you know, authenticity to your interactions, whether it be face-to-face, -face, whether it be over social media, you know, and being okay with the fact that that means that some population of potential customers are going to self-select and say, you know what? I'm not getting a loan from somebody that likes golden retrievers. I hate golden retrievers. I'm a cat person. I like cats. Yeah. And you know exactly. what? I'm going to get my loan from a cat person. Fine. You know, that person just told you, you know what? I'm not the right customer for you. Yep. And that's okay. There's, you know, you, you're going to show up much more yourself and build a much more real relationship by, yeah. by bringing that whole person. I know that sounds very cliche than by trying to, you know, concoct this very polished, I am for everybody persona. If you're for everybody, then you're really not for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And I've used that dog cat example. <laughs> Wouldn't you rather know I'm a dog person right up front than spend a month getting me all sorts of stuff when we get to the closing and you realize I'm wearing a golden retriever tie and you're like, I can't do business with this guy. There, there's no way <laughs> that's not going to happen. Um, another book that you just sparked, um, think like a brand, not like a bank by uh, Allison Netzer and, and Liz High. That's another one when you start talking about if you try to be everything to everybody, you're nothing to everybody. Or I think you said it much more eloquently, but I paraphrased terrible, of course. <laughs> um, but they give examples in that book and they talk about, you know, what is your brain? And it's okay. We don't have to serve everyone. Um, if they legitimately qualify and there's no, you know, minimal risk and, and they can use your service, then, you know, you're not going to keep them out. You know, sorry, you can't bank here because you're purple. We don't, we don't serve purple people. <laughs> um, but we, we may, you know, decide there's a certain type of business that we really love to take care of. And we tailor our products and services to that, or a certain type of customer that, we just do really, really well, better than others. And, and what is it that that brand supports? Um, 
and uh, you know, kind of goes back to the personas and who is it that you're trying to serve, and how do you make sure that your message resonates with them? And I, I've, I've not validated this recently, but someone told me that when we talk about personas, Walmart has uh, a one persona. It's a 42 year old single working mother of two. And you think of a billion plus dollar company like Walmart and all the people that roll through Walmart's doors, you would think that they would have, you know, people that do sporting goods and cooking people. And um, it's that one person and, and they speak to her with their layout and their, their merchandise and their pricing and their promotion and their imagery. And does it mean that a 50 some year old, uh, heavy metal of <laughs> mountain bike riding golden retriever owner, uh, can't shop there, but they have picked a brand and, and that's who they're going after. But then there's also a central point and people resonate off of that. And, um, but if I'm a Neiman Marcus guy, I'm not going to go to Walmart and, and that's okay. Cause you know, I'm probably not a Neiman Marcus guy or a North. <laughs> Um, I'm probably more of a Walmart guy, which, which is fine. I'm, I'm really digging it. You know, it's the idea of being intentional really understanding who your customer is, having that clear picture of your customer. And then, and then, a, you know, just as much clarity around engaging is, I mean, that's where it's at. Right. So you really strike me as someone who stays anchored to fundamentals I'm curious, are there trends in marketing that you're seeing in the baking industry that that are getting your attention? And if so, why? Certainly video and storytelling is starting to become more and more popular. Uh, the platforms are getting easier to use. People are getting more comfortable. People are seeing others do it more often. So they're uh, keeping up with the Joneses. Probably 90% of the Mondays, I'm sending my marketing director a little video to put out on our uh, our link banker Instagram called Mondays with Eric. It's just a little one minute thought, but I'll see a little bit of engagement there, which which has been pretty cool. the The CRM marketing automation concept is one. Again, it's it's been around for a while, but it's starting to pick up steam. Thinking of ways that we can communicate. The word automation oftentimes instills fearful visions of you know, thank you for calling XYZ bank, press one for this and two for that. I mean, <laughs> that's not the type of automation that we're talking about. It's, it's more of a personalized automation where we can respond, but we have to take the time to think about, well, what does that path look like for Dane when he's interested in X, Y, or Z? Cause that might be different than what that path looks like for Fred. And, and how do we build that on the back end? And it's going to take a little bit more thought and time initially, but long-term, you're going to reap the rewards of that. I, I feel cliche, but I'll say it anyway. Of course, AI, you know, who knows where that's going to go. But when you start thinking of thought leadership and content creation, that tool, and I say tool, can help you get your thoughts out, even for people that, you know, I know what I want to say, but I just have a hard time formulating it. The technology exists now where that excuse is going to pretty soon not be a valid excuse anymore. It can draft an outline. It can produce content for you. It can give you an excellent first draft where you look at it and you're like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to say. 
but then you put your own spin on it. You give it your personality. You throw in some emojis or some words that you like to use. I'm known for saying awesome, probably more than I should. Um, I've never surfed, but uh, <laughs> I would think if I did, it would be pretty awesome if I could surf because then the the word awesome would resonate even more with me. But working that in, I think AI is going to unveil a lot of thought leaders. And one of the things few years ago, there was a study done that was funded by Facebook as it related to the power of groups. It found that there were individuals that in a physical setting would not take a role of leadership because they didn't like the pressure of being in front of other people and, um, you know, hey, lead this committee or, or, you know, head up this initiative. Nah, I don't want to do that. But if you give them the opportunity to moderate or become the organizer or the administrator of an online group, they thrived because they wanted to organize, but they just didn't want to do it in person. And it revealed an opportunity and, and there's community managers out there that are growing communities and, and building an audience of networked individuals that care about the same thing that just wouldn't have been possible geographically or even socioeconomically or culturally. And every time technology makes something possible, it reveals opportunities for people that hadn't been able to really embrace their spirit animal or their superpower, but now they can. I think of Brian Fanzo and some of the AI-generated artwork that he's creating and telling his story of ADHD and you know, some of the challenges of being somewhat distracted in life and being a girl dad to three little girls. He's embraced AI art to tell his story. And he's not an artist. He probably can't really draw. I don't know if he can or not, but some of his work <laughs> is, is killer. And you can tell what it is that's in his mind based off of the art that he's creating through artificial intelligence. So I think that's going to be a really interesting development to watch unvolve, uh, un evolve, I guess. Unveil and evolve is unvolve, in case you're wondering. I'm inventing words here right in your podcast. You're welcome. We, we, are, we are getting super philosophical also. Like I, I'm, cur I'm curious, like what, what is really being an artist? Is it being able to put together that vision of what you want to tell somebody, or is it really the the physics of drawing a line on a sheet of paper? And I think it, for me, I think it's the former, right? Like absolutely, just because you're not very good at manipulating a paintbrush or you know a pencil or or whatever, but you have that vision in your mind. Now there's tools that help unlock the ability for people to put that vision forward, and I I think that's a hundred percent artistic. I don't know. Dane, what your thoughts on that are? Totally agree. You know, I think that when I think about LLMs right now and I think about AI, I see like this version of it, this early version of it, even though some of my AI friends would say it's not early, is <laughs> it, it solves that blank page problem. Yeah. You know, and it just, it kind of like jumps us out into a really good place. And and I think it, it does allow for, I mean, creative brain comes in many, many forms, yep. you know, so I... I'm loving it. Are there are there any particular marketing tools or technologies you think are going to be most impactful for banks over the next, you know, a couple of three years? I don't know if it's going to be Finalytic or other platforms like that, or maybe the core providers will figure it out and they'll be able to start baking in some of that predictive intelligence. But I think keeping an eye on ways that you can leverage all of your customer data 
and I've been baffled by this for years. I mean, even in my early days, I would look at all of the information that a customer would put on a mortgage application in the industry, we call it a 1003, but all of the information they would put on a mortgage application and they would pour their heart out. They, you, you would know everything, you know, where their checking accounts are, their savings accounts, their investments, retirement plans. And we would do the mortgage. We would put it in the folder. We would stick it in the vault because we didn't scan things back then. <laughs> and, and you had their fingerprint right there to be able to say, you know, can we simplify things? Can we introduce you to our LPL investment representative? Um, it looks like you've got accounts over at the credit union or another bank. Did you know that if you had all of your accounts here, you could easily transfer? And let me tell you about online banking. We didn't do that. And I don't know if that's just cultural, but even still, bankers are just not good at that because we don't want to be told no. And if we can get technology to help us with some of that, technology be, can be told no, and it's not going to get hurt feelings. And then the ones that are interested can then percolate to the top. And now I've got somebody that said yes, and that conversation is going to be a whole lot easier for me to have than running the risk of somebody telling me no. So pre-qualification, pre-selection, but I think leveraging the data that we have around the transactions, the needs, the next likely product, uh, the life cycles, predictors, um, anything along those lines if you see something, try it, do a demo of it, sign up for a, you know, a, a 30 day trial, ask questions, be curious, explore. Those are ways that, especially with the smaller community banks, we're going to have to be able to embrace that in order to remain relevant because the other big dogs are out there investing in that technology themselves to get to really yeah. know their customers. And we've had a lock on that know me, like me, trust me as a small community bank ecosystem for years because of the local decisions and the fact that the CEO lives in the same town, goes to the same church, has kids that play on the same little league teams. But eventually that won't be as important because those things aren't going to exist in the physical world as much as they did 10, 15, 20 years ago. So that's one random thought that jumped into my head for that question. I'm sure there's more. I gave it time. You know, it's it, it's interesting. It reminds me of an article that I I came across recently. I don't think it's a particularly new article, but it's it's Salesforce saying, "Hey, this is this is one of the reasons that data cloud is so important." Yeah. And there's a statistic that they point out that organizations are only gathering about 29% of their customer data. Yes. Right? I believe that. So your point resonates with me. You've got to know your customer. Yep. You know, if you're going to say the right thing at the at the right thing to the right person at the right time, yep. you've got to have that perspective. Even when you get into things like email collection, you know, it's, well, in a banking world, well, we've got email addresses for all of our customers that are using online banking. Well, the only reason is because they need an email address to log in, not because they've given you their email address because they care about what you're going to talk to them about. And if you ask them for an email address, the guards go up and they immediately think you want it because you're going to spam me and <laughs> you don't have a good response to that. Um, you know, Hey, would you like to get our newsletter that we send to all 10,000 of our customers? That's the exact same newsletter that everybody gets because we really don't care what's unique to you. We just want you to know what we're doing. You would never say that, but that's what they hear. 
versus <laughs> would you be interested in hearing from us? We provide the ability for you to let us know what topics you're interested in, whether it's information security tips, whether it's community events and activities and other sorts of participations that we're doing within the community that you live in, whether it's mortgage, whether you're following interest rates and give them that segmentation and let them personalize the experience, you're going to have a lot better likelihood of having them go, yeah, that's pretty cool. Instead of, oh, you're going to blast me with all 10,000 of your customers with the same message. No, thanks. But we have to have a system behind the scenes that gives us the ability to do that and get that 26% or whatever that number was to 30 to 50 to 60% so that we can really communicate to what's important to them versus what's important to us. It goes back to that Who's the hero in the story? Is it us? Yeah. Or is it the customer? And it should be. The well, it should be the customer. And I think that, you know, there's also, I'll say a bit of a cart and a horse or a chicken and an egg situation here where you need to make sure you're, you're doing both. Like you're both collecting information and also doing something with it. I think that right now customers, you know, are hypersensitive to what they share. And when they do share information, the expectation is, you're going to use bank, retailer, whoever it is, yeah. you're going to use that information to make things easier for me to right. either put something in front of me where I don't have to filter, right? I don't need to go and look at your seven different checking accounts and pick which one is right for me. Yep. You, you'll know because you know who I am. You'll know what credit card is going to fit my particular need because guess what? You've got transaction history. You, you see transactions in seven different cities over the last three months. You know I like to travel, right? You know, and, and kind of things like that. But I think that brands frequently fall into traps where they ask for a lot of information and then they don't actually use that information to move the needle for the customer. And and, and I found myself in this situation, you know, for banks and for, for other companies where I'm like, how are you sending me this message or how are you trying to sell me this clearly you're not paying any attention to me as a customer at all. And I think that's the the other thing that the banks and everyone needs to figure out is once you get that customer data, you can't just sit on it. You have to make it actionable. Right. Or, or customers are just going to close off and not want to share. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I, I appreciate the conversation. I think we could probably keep talking uh, the rest of the morning, uh, but I think we I think probably right. should. Uh... Really good. I, I don't even know how much time has passed, but I think it's probably uh, been a while. We probably want to let our, our podcast audience get on with their day uh, here pretty soon. But uh, one last thing, I, I do love the community you've been building at the Linked Banker. Uh, do you want to share just quickly with our audience more about the Linked Banker oh, and your, your goals for that, that community? Yeah. So the, the Linked Banker was an idea that, um, jumped into my head after attending a social media marketing world when uh, a guy by the name of Pat Flynn, Smart Passive Income, and a lot of other great things that he uh, has out there. And his closing keynote was um, around what audience do you best have the skill set to serve and and what's your passion? You know, the riches are in the niches kind of thing. Um mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, it, it obviously came out to be, you know, banking. So on the airplane on the way home, I drew out a mind map of all the ways that we can serve banks and really focus on that, uh, on that vertical. And one of them, the idea of the link banker just popped into my head because 
there were conversations that I would have with bankers after presentations and sessions and other sorts of, you know, schools and the, the light bulb of, you know, I now know what a hashtag is, or I get why LinkedIn isn't just a resume farm, but they would go back to their bank and they would struggle <laughs> with keeping the momentum and the excitement because they were going back into an environment of naysayers and people that really didn't get it. And so the linked banker, was created as a safe space for people that want to take the initiative to build their brand, to help one another and to get the support from other bankers um, to be able to, uh, to build their brand, to tell their story and to, you know, come out of their shell. And, you know, a lot of them, I'm not a marketing person, so I don't really know how I'm going to do this, but they rolled the dice and joined the community. And, <laughs> and next thing you know, they're experiencing opportunities to, sit on committees and do different sorts of things or even transfer jobs and get, you know, new roles because of, of what they've learned, not just from me, but from others within the environment. So, um, the linkedbanker.com is the website. Um, it's a very nominal monthly cost. It's less than 50 bucks. Um, if you're in it a couple months, 60 days, you decide it's not for you. We give you your money back. Um, so it's, it's it's not a huge money maker for me. That's not the reason I did it. The reason I did it is I wanted to do something that would help bankers be able to grow their brand and to tell their story because I think banking is a very noble profession. Um, and what you do, I didn't appreciate it when I was growing up and I saw the stuff that my father did until after the fact. And the 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 things that existed in Marshall because of him and the bank and what he had done serving on committees and volunteering and the support that the bank had given. Um, that's an amazing thing. And, and this is a way to help other bankers be able to be more comfortable doing that more in a digital age. And, um, the happy hours, the second Thursday of every month at five o'clock on LinkedIn live audio, they're available to anybody that wants to show up. You don't have to be a member. We do monthly masterminds, which are restricted only to mentor members um, that uh, are the third Wednesday. And those are recorded in our learning center. We've got our private community. It's like a, our own little social network. And it just gives people a really nice way of communicating and staying in touch and having your own little private secret club with a secret knock and a secret handshake and all those other fun things to get in and it's been it's been real exciting. Like, that that's awesome. I I love I love what you've been building there. I've enjoyed attending the happy hours. I hope that coming on here is going to help bust open the the secret handshake. There'll be a lot more <laughs> uh, members standing outside the clubhouse door. Uh, hopefully, in the next couple of weeks. Really appreciate uh, Eric the time today. Last thing uh, before we wrap up, uh, other than obviously, we'll put the the link to the link banker in the show notes. Uh, where can our listeners uh, find you if they want to connect? So the agency side is powered by WSI.com and that's where we build bank websites and do digital marketing and all sorts of stuff for banks. But the easiest way is probably just to find me on LinkedIn, Eric Cook MBA. Um, Cause even in 2007, some other dude named Eric Cook already snagged Eric Cook. Um, but I am just Eric Cook on Instagram. And if you like golden retrievers and bicycle pictures, you'll probably find a little bit of that over there as well. Um, but reach out, as you can tell, because of uh, this six hour podcast that we just put up, 
I love I love talking about this. I love helping bankers. Uh, I love brainstorming. You guys have been amazing, and I agree with you. I feel like I could stay on here and jaw with you guys all day long. And uh, kudos to you for doing this and allowing people to to have a pulpit to share their passion and to help professionals in the financial space um, share their story and hopefully touch people um, through your podcast. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you guys today. You bet, man. Thank you. And, uh, we'll definitely have to have you back, uh, for another conversation, another, another six hours yet to come. Excellent. I have a great rest of your that. day. Thanks guys. I'm just going to end with awesome. Nice. <laughs> love it. And welcome back. Dane, what do you have for us this week? Hey, what's up, Fred? I was checking out Salesforce AI Day on Monday. Learned that, among other things, there are 15 planned or pending AI products from Salesforce. For example, homegrown AI product Einstein is getting upgrades for sales, service, and marketing clouds. Automate email writing, meeting scheduling, smarter product support chats, personalized marketing content. Sounds like a pretty cool developer tool planned for Einstein to let customers add their own customized AI chat to bots. What did you hear? What's your take on AI Day? I was really impressed. I think it's funny. You and I were were texting during AI Day, and I think we ended up watching two completely different parts, but maybe you got the same takeaways. I think you watched a lot of the front half and and I joined about 30, 45 minutes in and caught a lot of the back half. I think it's an interesting, you know, mix. I there's a couple of things in the announcement and it's it's definitely a very Salesforce announcement in that it it has a lot of names for products. Uh, I think that my real takeaway is the approach, right? I love the approach that Salesforce is taking. Benioff, during his comments, you know, was really hitting the trust and transparency message hard. And one of my observations of Salesforce's kind of historical AI products, you know, like the Einstein lead score and the Einstein next best action is they are proprietary. They're baked into Salesforce. They don't have a bring your own model approach. And it's a bit of a black box. And now from a generative perspective, I don't know if it's response to hearing customer feedback. I don't know if it's, you know, the fact that they just didn't have their own LLM baked enough to, to roll it out. They're taking a bring your own model approach. They're taking a approach of building what I'm, what I'll call kind of anchor points into different parts of the platform, you know, Commerce Cloud, Marketing Cloud, Sales, Tableau, right? But the model is bring your own. So they've got a partnership with OpenAI where they have their own proprietary API that, that you know, they've co-developed with, with OpenAI. It's on their system, but it's closed off and it's secure and customer data is not going to be shared with anyone else. They've got the same thing with Anthropic or if you don't want to opt into one of those two models, you can bring your own. You can go to Google, you can go to you know, Azure, you can stand up your own model if you've got a data science team internally that can do that sort of thing. And really, Salesforce is not trying to be the answer from the model intelligence. It's trying to really play to its strengths and make sure that your data, the secret sauce, if you will, what you know about your customers and your opportunities is surfaced into whatever model you want to bring in, in a way that's like present in the workflow and secure so that you're not 
risky exposure of private data. And I, I think, I think this was a, a knock it out of the park approach. What about you? What did you take away? Totally agree. I mean, you and I have been playing with some, you know, some of these tools lately as well, GPT and generative AI, LLMs, et cetera. Lots of interesting capabilities. Totally makes sense the way that they're approaching things. And speaking of approach, did you hear about the new Beatles song? I think it's it's very interesting, right? I mean, obviously, uh, the Beatles broke up a long time ago. Uh, 50% of the band members are deceased, and, and yet they're releasing this new album, I guess. And it's getting a lot of positive reviews. So I think the big difference is that this is not deep fake. This is not AI trying to be John Lennon. This is using AI to, to take a legacy recording of John Lennon's actual voice and separate out a lot of things that, you know, wouldn't make it commercially viable. I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think it was like a studio session that, you know, he was just kind of messing around and 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 Yoko Ono had the tape and, and you know, she resurfaced it and, and brought it to Paul McCartney kind of a thing. But it is his voice. And then they're, you know, interweaving other voices and instruments and everything but they're leveraging AI to isolate that voice and, and really make it a clean recording. I think this really, you know, to extrapolate it out to the last conversation, right? It's about that trust and transparency. You know, I think if this were the case of Paul McCartney saying, you know what, I'm going to write on the Beatles name and I'm going to, you know, build a John Lennon voice model and start having John Lennon sing, you know, I don't know, like Tupac's greatest hits or something crazy like that, then I think the, the public would not be as positive. But I, I love this, and I think it's a really you know great feel-good story. What do, you, what do you think about it? With a little help from AI. <laughs> now, I, I think it. it's super cool. I'm, I'm interested to see you know how, how that plays out. I, I think that, I guess, like director Peter Jackson made a documentary called Get Back. It was like an eight-hour-long documentary, and I think that's where the, the, the piece that you're describing, you know, Lennon and the Piano was was maybe first discovered and then kind of extracted oh, wow. from that or something along those lines. So that's cool. I, cool. I've been meaning, I've been meaning to see that. I've not seen that documentary. I've heard it's phenomenal though. Yeah, I watched a couple of hours of it. I mean, it's a little before my time, but I love the Beatles. Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. It's definitely about- before my time, but just a fascinating piece of pop culture history. Yeah, for sure. Now, did you hear about the Salesforce C data partnership? I did. It was an interesting and exciting piece of news. CData has been a uh, partner with, with Tableau for a long time, really enabling companies to easily move data into Tableau historically and now, you know, an expanded partnership across all of Salesforce. I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, Salesforce it, to really make and empower the types of customer experiences that Salesforce is envisioning for its customers, you need a lot of data. And CData has done a great job of building a pretty robust library of integrations, productized integrations to middle and back office. Um, that I think in a lot of cases, you know, if you're on some of these major ERP, major accounting platforms, it could really shortcut the amount of time it takes you to bring some really critical data into data cloud specifically. Um, I think, you know, it's not a silver bullet. I re-looked at the C data website. I hadn't looked at it in a little in a little while. I looked at it when the when the news came out, you know, thinking about just like financial services where I work the most frequently. 
you know, I don't see a lot of, you know, bank cores. I don't see any bank cores. I don't see any insurance policy admin or claim systems. So it, it is very much a, a generalist tool set, right? If you've got, you know, SAP or you've got, you know, ADP, you're using, you know, dynamics and part of your business, you know, those are very easy connectors. Um, but for some of the more industry specific, and I, I will pretend to know like manufacturing or healthcare or some of these other industries, but I'm not seeing a lot of industry specific, you know, connectors. So I think there's still a lot of hard work that, that will have to be done to bring data over from those types of systems. That's not going to be shortcut by this partnership. Hey, let me ask you a question. Like, are there, are there certain data types that would be more appropriate to build a connector for, and you can sort of just like click done and it works. Whereas maybe other sources of data, that's just not going to work out for one reason or another. I think of it less as data types and maybe that's what you mean, but like sources, right? So I think about bank cores as an example and bank cores, a lot of them live on, you know, older infrastructure mainframes that just make them more difficult to integrate with in general. A lot of them suffer from from non-universal versioning. You know, we're we're all on Salesforce. Uh, Salesforce pushes three updates a year, and and you know, although they sometimes give you some optionality if you want to take a certain feature or not for a period of time, you're you're getting that upgrade, right? There's there's nobody running five year old Salesforce, right? Everybody's running current Salesforce or bank cores. That's not always the case, and so those fields, those objects inside the core can look very different from version to version. The other thing is, you know, again, is is one of the you know, especially like you know the more legacy core systems. You're dealing with a, a sometimes, you know, 50, 75, 100, two and three character fields, and and maybe I pick one of those fields and I put in AA, and I know that it means a certain thing, but at another bank they might use you know dollar sign star or something else to indicate the same thing, and so it's the translation. So. Between those factors, like building a productized integration to something that has that much variance can be, you know, really challenging. And I think as opposed to when I see, and I'm not like taking anything away from the list of of really extensive integrations that CData has, it's definitely going to save a lot of time, but they tend to be number one, more, more modern, you know, products. And they also tend to be things that have a little bit more standardization in in data model and, and usage. And so I think that makes that a little bit easier. Yeah, it's almost like in home manufacturing, right? Like some homes are manufactured, others are stick built. And, you know, it's probably always going to be that way. Exactly. So, well, uh, I wanted to raise one thing. Well, we have just a couple minutes left here in the pod. Uh, I read an article this week that featured a quote from Salesforce's global customer growth and innovation evangelist, uh, Tiffany Bova. And I guess she wrote a new book on employee engagement. And this was an uh, article interviewing her about the book. And, and one of her takeaways was that low turnover is not a signal of high employee engagement or satisfaction. And I think that a lot of times organizations look at some of these engagement metrics like attrition and expect that to tell the whole story. And, and I know you've done a lot of work in in the space and I'm just kind of curious like what is your take on you know attrition and what it may or may not tell you about employee engagement and satisfaction mm. I'm going to tiptoe with my comment an old friend of mine one of the people that I respect and admire the most works for the post office and so you know pardon me I apologize in advance but when I walk into the post office 
I observe employees that are retained, right? They work there for a career, but I don't know that I would describe them as super engaged. So I totally agree with her. Like I, you know, I think engagement is about meaningful work and building trust and those types of things. Whereas retention is rewards and there's a ladder to climb and they aren't synonymous with one another. You know, they're, they're definitely different. I think it's a, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to read her book. I think I'm going to have to look that up in audible. Hopefully it's there and check it out. I've definitely added it to my list as well. I'm with you. I, spend more and more time listening to books on Audible and less time reading them. I don't know if that's a, a good or a bad thing, but I guess at least it means uh, I'm getting the information one way or the other. I'm curious though, like, you know, what, from, from your perspective, and I know you've, you've helped advise a lot of companies on this kind of stuff. What would you either point them to, to be able to measure engagement and satisfaction? You know, it really just, the, the process of creating engagement is in my mind, how I would define it is it's doing just that. It's staying connected with your employees. It's having those conversations. It's not necessarily having a third party send like a blind survey to find out if people are in, you know, appreciating their medical benefits, but, you know, teams, you know, team leaders and managers, <clears throat> sitting down with employees one-on-one, -on -one, maybe sometimes in group sessions and having those conversations. And I think that that, you know, that's a great example of where engagement starts, where engagement continues, you know, how engagement is fueled. Whereas, you know, retention, you know, again, totally different thing, just keeping up with the Joneses in terms of, you know, benefits and compensation. Um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe retirement plans, um, you know, upskilling, learning, you know, so lots of different things that go into that. I mean, they're both important. Mm -hmm. Um, retention is probably easier for most people to measure and engage or, you know, just sort of measure and track. Um, I think engagement is a bit squishier, but again, it really just, you know, in my mind, it's just sitting down and just having those one-on-one -on -one conversations. I mean, what's your take on that? When have you felt engaged? And and when you did feel engaged, what was happening at that time? I think the times that I felt the most engaged, you know, to your point, it's when I've had a meaningful work where I feel like I've had some some challenges to solve that are really going to move the needle for the business that I'm in. Uh, when I, I, I get a lot of energy and excitement from you know, being in front of, of people and, you know, whether that's, you know, in a formal leadership position or just a, a kind of a thought leader and influencer. And, you know, that's, that's what energizes me on the opposite side. You know, when, when I don't feel connected to the work, when I don't feel like whether I show up or not, whether I, I put in the effort or not, it's, it's really not going to make a difference. It's not, it's not going to impact the overall results that that's demotivating. Um, I don't know how universally true that is. I, I tend to rate myself as very self-motivated and very engaged. I mean, I, I get the concept of quiet quitting that you hear so much about, but I don't think that's my nature. I don't think I'm a quiet quitter. I think I'm a loud quitter, if that's if that's such of a thing. If I'm not happy, I'm going to try to to make noise and 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 hopefully get in a better situation where I am. And if that doesn't work out, then I'm going to make a choice to go somewhere else. I don't think I could spend, you know, eight, 10 hours a day, 
you know, five days plus a week in involved in something and not feel like I'm making a difference. You bring up a good point. I mean, another, I think another key aspect of having engagement is like a strong, clear, a strongly communicated, clearly communicated vision. Mm -hmm. People do feel like they're like a part of that and contributing to that. And, you know, you see the mo the needle moving. So absolutely. I mean, those are, those are the, those are the, that is engagement but difficult to measure, right? It is difficult to measure. And I think that might be part of why companies fall back on some of the easier things to measure, right? I can, I can put a stake in the ground, count my employees in, count my employees out and get to a retention number, right? Like that's, that's an easier thing to measure than how engaged are people, how much satisfaction are they feeling at, at work? And I think the, maybe the point uh, that she was trying to make is, you know, don't, don't take the easy way out. Or if you do, at least know that you're not measuring what you think you're measuring. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, you know, I'm looking forward to checking out the book. Well, cool. Well, maybe you'll share some more of the insights from the book in one of our upcoming episodes. But I appreciate the time. As always, phenomenal episode again this week. And Dan, I'm going to wish you a great day. Have an awesome day, Fred. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed episode five of Banking on Disruption. So many great takeaways. I hope you had your notebook out for Eric. But if you didn't, you can find show notes and a full transcript of the show on our website, bankingondisruption.com. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Dana and I get super excited when we log into the podcast dashboard and see how many people are downloading and subscribing. It's super motivating to see those numbers move up because it means we're connecting and providing value to you, our audience. So thank you. New episodes drop every other Thursday, so we'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram and at Banking on Disruption. Until next time, this is Fred Cadena wishing you success in your digital pursuits.